Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. The Academy podcast is one offering from a rich well of content, sprung from deep relationship building with wisdom guides, pilgrim participants, and wholehearted leaders we've had the honor of knowing throughout the past 36 years. Thank you to all of those who've joined us on the journey, and if you're new with us today, welcome. We're glad you're here. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. This month's podcast features teaching from Elaine Heath at a 2014 five-day academy in North Carolina, where she offered a series of lectures entitled The Way of Wisdom. Leading us through the Apostles' Creed, which is familiar to some and new to others, Elaine beckons us to see God's mercy and God's judgment as one and the same, to welcome people with prayer and hospitality, to pay attention, to breathe with God, to trust in the incarnation of love almightiness. Elaine is the former dean of Duke Divinity School, where she was professor of missional and pastoral theology, and is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. She is the co-founder of the Missional Wisdom Foundation, a nonprofit with several regional hubs across the U.S. that serve as contextual learning sites for missional community formation, new monasticism, social enterprise, and reimagining church. Elaine has provided retreat and seminar leadership in spiritual formation and leadership development for clergy for many years. Among her research interests are new monasticism, the emerging church, spirituality and evangelism, and gender and evangelism. Serving as faculty for many academies throughout the years, Elaine, through her writing, teaching, and presence, offers us hope in the midst of despair, wisdom in the midst of foolishness, and mercy in the midst of judgment. Listen on, beloveds, and enjoy. So um, I wanted to, to give you two not complete definitions, but toward definitions <laughs> before we get started with the main uh, talk today. The first one is the word wisdom. There are lots of ways we can think about what wisdom means, and there's not just one way, but one way that I have found increasingly helpful in the last several years is to think of wisdom as knowledge gained through suffering. It's knowledge gained through suffering. It's not knowledge gained through reading a book. So often, uh, the way we, each of us in this room, have gained wisdom is by making mistakes and failing. And that, we don't like it. It feels bad. <laughs> we don't like it. it. It hurts. It's difficult to get through. Depending on how large the failure is, it can be devastating, or it can just be a little bit embarrassing. But this is how we gain wisdom, and we learn how to have some sense about us. And um, so just hold on to that nugget for a minute as we move into the uh, lecture, that one of the ways I find helpful to think about wisdom is it's knowledge gained through suffering. 
And then the other word I wanted to mention briefly is the word mission, which is such a dirty word in so many people's minds. Um, but that word missio, the Latin word missio, simply means sent out. It doesn't mean anything dirty or mean or colonizing. It just means sent out. And so let's keep that in mind, too, that being missional people really means being people who were sent out to bear the love of God into the world. That's the real meaning of that. So unfortunately, in many times and places in Christian history, mission, the idea of mission, has been hijacked to mean colonization, conquest, violence against people, violence against cultures, violence against anyone who doesn't submit. It's meant talking about God as if God were a violent God and that violence comes from God and returns us to God. Mission has meant all those things. It's been hijacked. Uh, violence against anyone who doesn't submit to our version of what's true and real. It's meant the theft of land and other resources, and even genocides. Like its sister word evangelism, mission has been so distorted that for most people, it now means anything but good news. I've been teaching at Perkins now for nine years. I'm into my 10th year. And um, uh, people who come into my class who've been in the seminary for a couple years have usually heard a few things about my class, but when people haven't heard anything and they're new and they come into my class on evangelism, um, the usual normal way for them to come in is to say, I really dread taking this class. I don't want to take it, but I have to take it to get ordained. Like, oh my God, <laughs> the class on good news. <laughs> Now, why is that? It's because we've thoroughly trained people to fear and loathe mission and evangelism, especially evangelism, because we've taught people that this is an activity that is inherently violent, inherently dehumanizing, and inherently exploitive. So this week, I'm going to be talking about practices of missional wisdom. There are those two words we first looked at. <laughs> Practices, practices of missional wisdom, this sent outness, carrying the love of Christ into the world, fully informed by and learning from and with the suffering of those who have been harmed by bad versions of mission and evangelism. So far, so good? That was a really long sentence. <laughs> St. Paul would be really pleased with it. <laughs> so we're going to be looking at the admissional wisdom, carrying the gospel into the world, fully informed by this suffering that we've inflicted upon the world in the name of God. Which, by the way, isn't that what it means to take the name of God in vain? Isn't that a blasphemous activity? To do violent things and say that we're doing it for God? So my premise is quite simple. What we live is actually what we believe. If you want to know what any of us believes, what we hold true to our heart, what we cherish and would lay down our life for, just watch how we live. If you live, with, uh, if you live in a, a family where you have to 
walk around and tiptoe around and walk on eggshells and uh, people speak in code. Does this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> uh, you learn, when you're growing up in a family like that, you learn how to ignore what the words are coming out of people's mouths and pay attention to the actions that are going on. You're, you're, you know what I'm saying? You're watching. And so this is what we have to think about. It's what we're living that people are watching, not our words. So I believe that if we will live the robust baptismal faith, if we'll put on our baptism, the faith that's actually summarized in the Apostles' Creed, if we'll live that, we will bear the real gospel into the real world. And evangelism will happen. That's what I believe. Because the Apostles' Creed is a concise declaration not of theories, abstract theories up in a cloud, like this cloud word thing up here, but it's, it's a summary of the actions of a missional God. A God who's always giving God's self away. A God who's always going out. The God who's a sent out God. <laughs> it's a summary of actions. And when we live this, living our baptism, when we live the divine wisdom found in the Apostles' Creed, we practice evangelistic love of neighbor, and it's liberating, it's healing, it's transformational, and it's shockingly inclusive. It's, it's sort of promiscuously loving everybody with the love of God, regardless of the outcome. And this is the thing that we find so difficult in the church, because we really want to control the outcome. So... Though this is a simple premise, it's a radically different vision for evangelism than is found in most of our churches. In our context, those of us who are United Methodists, most congregations functionally define evangelism as a committee that looks after welcoming visitors to the worship service. <laughs> it's a committee. And it's, uh, it's all dependent on people showing up in our building and coming to our worship service, and then our job is to make sure somebody has the coffee cup and the little leaflets to give to our guests, right? That's evangelism. The evangelism committee provides information packets about the church's worship and service opportunities. It awards guests a complimentary coffee mug emblazoned with the name of the church so that the people will know we're hospitable. We get it about coffee. <laughs> and it makes sure there are welcome pads in the pews. And the visitors sign it, so the pastor hopefully will follow up on them with a letter. And if they keep coming back, possibly a visitor, somebody will go see them, maybe. This is evangelism. And this committee's efforts focus entirely on visitors to the worship service. It has little to do with what happens in the lives of members or outside the walls of the church building. That's not the area of concern. These practices are common in all mainline and many evangelical congregations. How did that happen? <laughs> I have yet to find a congregation where the evangelism committee's task is to educate the congregation as to how to live evangelistically in their own neighborhood. I have yet to see a church in which the evangelism committee, or the creed for that matter, <laughs> has anything to do with the way the church board functions, how leadership development is done, 
how Christian education is conducted, what constitutes mission, or how mission is carried out. Just as we've lost touch with the great saints and mystics of the church who could lead us back to missional wisdom, we've forgotten the true purpose of the Apostles' Creed, which is to prepare us for missional life. That's the purpose of the creed. I think we've said it too many times when we were sleepy. <laughs> we've hurried past it without thinking about these words that we've been saying. And this is always the problem with liturgy. I appreciated what Rami said yesterday. He struggles with liturgy, and I struggle with liturgy too, partly because I came out of a low church liturgy-lacking tradition. <laughs> Uh, but we can say words over and over and we just forget what they mean. What would it be like if in the creeds of the church we said, I love or I trust, rather than I believe? What would be different? The Apostles' Creed, which is the baptismal creed dating to antiquity, was not meant to be used as a line in the sand for saying and doing violent things against those who have a different credo. It was not intended for that. It was meant for orienting one's life as to how one would live. The Apostles' Creed had a variety of local expressions and was the way that people were prepared for baptism in local churches. So early on in the development of the Creed, there were different versions of it, and people were okay with that. Isn't that something? There was variety of thought in the early church. It was not just one thing. So people preparing for baptism would learn in this, dis this distilled catechetical form a basic Trinitarian and scripturally grounded system of belief that was the essence of what they were committing their lives to as new Christians. So to borrow from Diana Butler Bass, they were saying, I love and trust God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and I love and trust Jesus, his, Jesus Christ, and so on. And what strikes me is the narrative quality of the Apostles' Creed. It's a short summary of the story of God in the world, a missional God. Have you thought of it that way? It's meant to shape the narrative of our lives in the world so that our story and God's story become a combined story. That's what it's for. It's meant to shape how we relate to God and to our neighbors and how we think about ourselves. So this missional wisdom, this divine wisdom, reflected in the creed, is really about life in the workaday world. It's narrative in its telling. It's generous in spirit, humble, listening for God, watching for the spirit. It's potent. It's able to call forth life out of death. So this first phrase, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe, I love and trust the inherent sanctity of creation and all people. Or as the old hymn says, this is my father's world. To love and trust that this whole world is God's, that everyone matters, that creation itself is holy. And God is Father Almighty. We could say Mother Almighty, too. 
As Hans Urs von Balthasar says, God's almightiness refers to God's ability to respond to any challenge with love, with love that overcomes, with love that heals, with love that can bring life out of death, that can pull life out of hell. That's what the love almightiness means, and that's what Balthasar calls it, love almightiness. So what does it mean for me to believe in, to love and trust, to become a living icon of this God of love almightiness? How would that look in my life, in the life of my faith community, to become an icon, an image, a window through which the world catches a glimpse of God's heart? The love almightiness. Jesus says that if we love only those who agree with us, even the Gentiles do that. The premier vocation of the Christian, the person who follows Christ, is to love our enemies. Those who not only disagree with us, but actively seek to harm us. To love them. And what does that even look like? Love almightiness is a life of prayer, a life of hospitality, a life of justice. It's like a three-legged load-bearing stool that gives credibility to our words, these three sets of practices, prayer, hospitality, justice. And if these three legs are not present, all of our doctrinal words come crashing to the ground and people get hurt. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Conceived, born, suffered, crucified, dead, buried. Over and over again in our lives as followers of Christ, we are conceived, we are born, we suffer, we are crucified, dead, and buried. This happens over and over from one season of our lives to the next. And for the Christian, these are rhythms that can lead us from glory to glory. This rhythm of conception, birth, death, conception, birth, death, resurrection. This is true of our church and its history as well. I love and trust Jesus, who was conceived, born, and suffered, who came to live with us, Emmanuel, God with us. I love and trust Jesus' life lived in cooperation with the Holy Ghost, lived in cooperation and conjunction with Mary, lived in response to all that Pilate represents. All of this was willful participation on Jesus' part, the incarnation of love almightiness. When Jesus died, he was really dead. Not fake dead, really dead. And to say that I believe in Jesus Christ who was dead and buried means that I love and trust in his solidarity with our utter deadness in all its manifestations the deadness of individuals, the deadness of nations, of people groups, of religions, the deadness of congregations, the deadness of the church, real death, real mystery, real solidarity, 
And in the early version of the creed, it says, he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. People with modern sensibilities have said, oh, let's get rid of he descended into hell because we don't believe in that. Please don't take that out. I'm so glad Jesus came into my hell. Where would I be if Jesus hadn't come into my hell? I'd still be there is where I would be. It's not taking the word hell out of the creed. It's taking out bad interpretations of hell. So all the hells that only humans could create, all the torment, the despair, the alienation, the dark nights, I love and trust Jesus who comes there, who descends there to suffer with and for us to lead us out. What might this mean for the three strangers if it could be communicated to them in a way they could understand? And what does it mean for me? Who do we think deserves to be tormented? Really. That is the one to whom Jesus descends in solidarity with resurrection power, ready to give it. How can I best communicate the passion, the love almightiness of this Jesus to my neighbors, to the lapsed Catholic, the half-lapsed Muslim, the angry Christian that wants to fight me? The only way I can is to descend into their hells, to join Christ in his suffering with and for them there, and to reach for the resurrection power for them and with them in that place. That is the only way. That is the divine wisdom. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Let me get this straight. Jesus is the judge and the Holy Ghost is the defense attorney. The paraclete. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father as the executor of the Father's will. The Trinity are in one accord. They're all plotting for our well-being. <laughs> Focused on our well-being. Putting to shame the accuser of our souls. This is what's happening. John 3.17 For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about his promise, is patient, not wanting any to perish. Romans 8 Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Psalm 139, which we read yesterday, if my memory is correct. <laughs> if I make my bed in hell, you are there with me. Could it be that judgment and mercy are the same thing in God's economy? The same power at work. Judgment that removes the oppression offers a new way of life. Judgment that is restorative. Love almightiness. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This is the era of the Spirit, so many people say. This is the era of the breath of God breathed over the world. And our job 
is to participate in the breathing. Everywhere we go, with everyone we meet, we get to breathe blessing upon them. We get to do that. It's our privilege. Our lives as a breath prayer breathed for the well-being of God's world. And the Holy Catholic Church, God sees one church, no geographic or denominational borders, no limits of time and space. God sees things in a different dimension. This is all about hope, perspective, newness, healing. Julian of Norwich's phrase, all manner of things shall be well. All shall be well. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. This deep trust in Jesus' words in the book of Revelation. Behold, I make all things new. If we really love and trust the great hope within this statement, we can meet people where they are. We can trust in the breath of God to quicken them and to quicken us and to quicken our relationship. We all meet these people all the time, but are we awake? Are we ready to receive them with prayer, with hospitality? Are we ready to engage in issues of injustice that directly affect our neighbors' lives? Do we show up? Do we pay attention? Do we cooperate with God? Do we release the outcome? Parker Palmer in A Hidden Wholeness says this, Instead of telling our vulnerable stories, we seek safety and abstractions, speaking to each other about our opinions, ideas, and beliefs, rather than our lives. Academic culture blesses this practice by insisting that the more abstract our speech, the more likely we are to touch the universal truths that unite us. But what happens is exactly the reverse. As our discourse becomes more abstract, the less connected we feel. There is less sense of community among intellectuals than in the most quote-unquote primitive society of storytellers. Isn't that the truth? May God lead us out of our wilderness of abstractions. <laughs> May God forgive us for the ways we've used theological statements as lines in the sand and bludgeons to get our way, whether from the left, the right, or from the center. And may God help us become good news, real good news, <laughs> the incarnation of love almightiness for God's sake and for the sake of the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I woke with a start two nights ago, my heart racing, my breath short. I was dreaming that my three, almost four-year-old son needed me and I couldn't get to him. Reaching for the lavender oil I keep next to my bed, I poured a generous portion into my hands, vigorously rubbed them together, then placed my oil-soaked hands over my face and began to breathe. This is the era of the spirit, says Elaine. 
the breath of God breathed over the world, and our job is to participate in the breathing everywhere we go with everyone we meet. We get to breathe blessing upon them. This is our privilege. Elaine's words echoed in my mind, my heart, my body. Could the blessing I was offering be for myself? In this panicked, short-breathed moment, it had to be. As I continued to breathe in through my nose and out through my mouth, my heart began to settle back into its normal rhythm. My breath deepened, moving from the base of my throat to my chest, then down into my ribs and belly. If the ocean can calm itself, writes the poet Nagira Wahid, so can you. With lavender oil and breath, with prayers too deep for words, the Spirit of God was with me. I settled back into my pillow, drenched in lavender, held in the love of the holy, and I knew, deep down in some very wise, true space within me, that what Elaine said was true. This is the era of the Spirit, the era of breathing with God. And perhaps it begins right here in the middle of the night, I thought, with me and my raging mind, heart, and body, so that when I wake, I can offer the same breath, the same lavender-soaked skin, the same depth of mercy to others. It is a gift, an honor, a privilege to practice such breathing with everyone we meet, even and perhaps especially with ourselves. May it ever be so. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Elaine Heath, join us at the next five-day or two-year academy. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.